Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the M121 Podcast, brought to you by He Shall Save Media. I'm Josh Coker, and on this episode, I'm joined by Pastor Sam Bryant as we talk about some of the pitfalls we face as people who live in a prosperous nation. We'll cover a lot of topics, including socialism. We'll talk about the prosperity gospel, and then we almost recorded an entire other podcast when we look at a case study in prosperity in the book of Revelation as the Lord writes a letter to the church at Laodicea. I think you'll find it very interesting and hope you do enjoy it. Brother Sam has over 50 years of pastoral ministry, so he has a lot of wisdom he can share with us. You can listen to the latest M121 podcast at our website, heshallsave.com, or any major podcast distributor or podcast app. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube page. It's all under He Shall Save Media. You'll get the latest content that way. God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the show. Obey Delima Mokalongi from Tanzania was with us here in Alabama for quite a while, and his observation of America was that we were being persecuted by prosperity. And I thought that was an interesting statement, and I asked him about it, and he said, well, prosperity is a good thing, but it can cause you to forget God. And that is so true. And we have to be very careful as God's children to guard our hearts with all diligence, lest we begin to take God's blessings for granted. And Brother Obey's statement reminded me of what Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They were about to go in and possess the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God brought them out of Egyptian slavery under the leadership of Moses, And then they were pilgrims in the wilderness for 40 years, just living off of manna and water. And after 40 years, it's time for them to go in and possess the promised land. So Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So Moses is wanting Israel to remember that there are not many gods. There's just one God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God promised this land to Abraham centuries before. And now God is keeping his promise. And these people are about to go into the promised land. So listen to what Moses says in verse 10. Of Deuteronomy 6. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not 
vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. This passage obviously tells us that God wants to bless his people materially in this life. God was bringing them into a good land, described figuratively as flowing with milk and honey. Our God is a good God. He is good to all of us. And he was going to be good to these people. And he was going to give them an abundant land to live in. Houses, fruit trees, wells to drink from. But there was a danger in God blessing them. And here was the danger. Lest, in verse 12, then beware Beware of what? Lest thou forget the Lord. It is a blessing in this life to have plenty to eat, plenty to drink, plenty to wear, to have nice houses to live in. But those blessings can cause us to forget God. So Brother Obey's statement really did register with me. I want to notice with you something the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, Charge or command them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly, all things to enjoy. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. He's a good God. He gives us many things to enjoy from a natural standpoint. But Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to warn those that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. He's not saying they have to give up their riches their riches can be enjoyed, but don't let their riches make them high-minded and begin to trust in uncertain riches. Yeah, and I think that's relevant as I'm sitting here and you're going through that. I thought about in Deuteronomy where he says there that he's going to give them uh, great and goodly cities which they didn't build and these homes and these things. And for my generation, so I'm a millennial, far removed from the greatest generation and some of those that brought so much prosperity to our nation you know we've inherited a lot i've heard it said there really are no self-made men but we my generation have it probably better than any that has come as far as financially uh, with technology uh, medical advances all these things that would lead to prosperity but we didn't work for a lot of it so i think this is very relevant to especially younger folks like me and then those who are rich, he said in First Timothy. And I know we were reading earlier that if you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 99% of people in the world. So that's very relevant to Americans today. Um, 
and that we wouldn't be high-minded. That'd be arrogant, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's yeah, the, you know, God does not want us to forget him. And that's what he said to Israel, sure. lest thou forget me. How many of us want to forget the fountain of every blessing? That would be tragic. So would you say prosperity, when we are prosperous, like we're talking about today with medical advances, or um, how many of us, very few people in America go to bed, there are some, but go to bed wondering what they're going to eat tomorrow. I guess there's a, there is a huge danger in that, that we don't feel our need for God. That is so true. Now, again, I want to emphasize that the Bible teaches us that our God is a good God. Right. He is gracious. In uh, Third John chapter, in, in Third John, Third Epistle of John, verse two, he would say, "Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper." and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. So John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was wishing of all things that his friend Gaius would prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospereth. So there's nothing wrong with being prosperous. There's certainly nothing wrong with being in good health. But we don't want to neglect our soul. He says, even as thy soul prospereth. And if God's children are not very careful in this life, when we begin to prosper financially and materially, we can begin to neglect our inner man, our soul, and not feed it and take care of it as we should. So there's a great danger in being wealthy. Now, a lot of people would have the attitude, well, bring it on. <laughs> I'm ready for the challenge. And, and, and as you just said a moment ago, Brother Josh, if you make $50,000 a year in 2020, you are among the top, what is it? 1% of the world. 1% of the world. That's incredible to think about. So we are all in America doing very well compared to many people in the world and looking back through history. So we want to learn how to enjoy richly all things that God gives us. And in my opinion, the only way to really enjoy anything is to receive it with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Um, if, if we're not thankful for a T-bone steak and potato, I doubt if we're really going to enjoy it as much as we would a bologna sandwich with a grateful heart. Gratitude just increases our ability to enjoy what we have. And we have a national holiday, Thanksgiving, and that's a good thing, but we ought to be thankful every day instead of murmuring and complaining. Yeah, gratitude and thanksgiving 
are two of the greatest ways that you can glorify God. Right? And that's what we're here for, to glorify God. Paul would tell the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it is, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Uh, so I would say having a thankful attitude and gratitude, like you're saying, is that is glorifying God. Whether it's the T-bone steak or the bologna sandwich, if you're thankful for it, it's the means to glorifying God, right? Amen. Um, so you talked about prosperity not necessarily being a bad thing, and I don't think we want to give that message that that there have been there are many people in the Bible, and there are many people today who are very prosperous. They're blessed. They're wealthy, but they're good, godly people, right? Yes. So it's not a bad thing, but there are many dangers that come with it. The first one being there that you said, uh, forgetting God, trusting in your wealth. What are some other dangers that would you know? In Luke chapter twelve, Jesus talks about the rich man whose fields brought forth bountifully and he filled up his barns and he still had a lot. So he tore down those barns and he built bigger barns and filled them up. And then he said, soul, take thine ease. Thou hast goods laid up for many years to come. So he's trusting and uncertain riches. And I would say this, one reason God blesses people on this earth is so that they can be a blessing to others. And when God blesses us financially, maybe it's not so much for us to increase our standard of living as it is to increase our standard of giving. Because the happiest people on earth are those who are going around being a blessing to others. So the rich man in Luke chapter 12 is one of those that trusted in uncertain riches. And he became high-minded. And Jesus said, he said, uh, tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who's going to get all this wealth? So... That's, that's a sad lesson there, but it's a sobering lesson. And uh, so there are dangers in being wealthy, but there are also many blessings in being wealthy if you have learned to share. We yeah. were talking earlier about a passage in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Solomon is saying that if a wealthy person has pity on the poor, and I would think that if you're having pity on them, you are helping them out materially, that's the same as lending money to the Lord. Now, that's a great blessing. You know, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Our flesh says, no, it's more blessed to receive than to give. But the, the creator of the universe and the savior of our souls taught us it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. 
Now, if you're in a position where you can give, that's in itself a great blessing. And if you're in a condition where you have to receive in order to live, that's that's not where we want to be. That's not, you know, we want to uh, be able to share with others. But any of us could end up very quickly in a situation where we have to receive the generosity of others. And so may God help all of us to learn how to be givers instead of just always adding to our riches and seeing how much we can accumulate, tearing down our barns and building bigger ones. That's, that's so foolish, yeah. so unwise. And our Savior taught us not to fall into that trap. That next verse in 1 Timothy 6 so you read verses, verse 17, but verse 18, which says he, he's to charge them they do good, that they be rich in good works. And he says, ready to distribute. I think that would be to give there you charitably. Go. That's willing exactly. to communicate, to share, liberally, be willing. So I think there's something, sounds like there, Paul's saying, you've got to teach people to even be willing to do it. It's, it's something that we willfully make the choice to do to share, to distribute with others. And then he says, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So there's a spiritual blessing that comes through giving and sharing. Right. That's how you experience eternal life. Not how you gain eternal life, but how you enjoy the life that you have, this good life, this eternal life that God's given you. That's right, as you learn to give. Now, Socialist and communist would say that the government has a right to take from those that work hard and labor and make money. The government has a right to take from them and give to others. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Yeah, explain that for me, because that's certainly a relevant topic uh, in America today as we drift closer and closer to socialism. Right. If Let's say I walk up to Joe and take money out of his pocket to give to uh, Andrew. Did I give it? No. Joe gave it, and he didn't do it willingly. So when the government takes money out of your pocket to give to somebody else, that's not scriptural. You are to be the one that learns to give generously and to help others. And then you get the blessing. So socialism is not scriptural. I was reading just last night where Fidel Castro, who was an atheist, said that Jesus Christ was a communist because he fed the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes, and he taught the rich young ruler to go and sell all that he had and and give it to the poor. So Fidel Castro was saying that Jesus Christ was a communist. No, Jesus Christ was a humanitarian, and he would help people. He himself was poor in this world's goods. He said one time, the birds have uh, nests, the foxes have holes, the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. He chose to be poor so that through his poverty we might be rich in heaven someday. 
So Jesus Christ is a great example of someone who would give out of his abundance to others. But he didn't teach us that the government has the authority to do that. The Bible teaches us that if a man will not work, then he shouldn't eat. There's no such thing in Scripture as the Bible teaching us that we should all have everything in common. One of the Ten Commandments teaches us, thou shalt not covet what your neighbor has. If he's worked for it and he's got it, then you're not to covet what he has. You're to work for what you need in this life. The Bible teaches a great work ethic. And you yeah, and another, I are another, to be working. Yeah, and another commandment would be thou shalt not steal. Which in your <laughs> in your example of uh, Joe and Andrew, it was theft. That was stealing. It was, it was stealing, um, exactly. What about people that would use the early church? as depicted in the in the book of Acts as a um, socialist, I guess is the word I need to use. You right. hear that in Christianity. Yes, sir. And it is true that in the Acts of the Apostles in the Jerusalem church, when the church was in its infancy, its first love, uh, and they were experiencing persecution, they did sell all of their possessions and they brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet and they distributed it as each man had need. They tried it. They tried pure communism. But it did not work for them. God did not command them to do that. Yeah, they that would were, just be a description of what they did. Not That's not God prescribing them to do it. It's just a, the book of Acts is just describing how the church was working at that time. Right? That's right. They were so caught up in their first love for Christ and the gospel, that they did this. But God did not command them to do it, and apparently it did not work for them because later on, the Apostle Paul had to go around to other churches and collect money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. In other words, apparently they ended up broke trying, right. to, trying communism. So... The Bible certainly does not teach that as a command. But the Bible does teach that we're to work with our own hands, do our own business, and as we are blessed in our labors, in our careers, to accumulate, and then we see people that are in need, we should gladly help them because it's such a blessing to be able to help others. So the Bible teaches us that it's a good thing to share what God has blessed us with out of our own hearts. But it's not good for me to take from this man without him being willing to give it. Just take from him forcefully and give it to somebody else. You know, the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan is interesting. There are three characters in that parable. The first ones are the thieves. And their attitude is, what is yours is mine if I can take it. The second character in that parable is the priest and the Levite who passed by and saw this man beaten and robbed and left half dead on the Jericho Road. They see him in that condition. 
And they say, what is mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it, and you can't have any of it. And then there is the third character, the good Samaritan, looked down on by Jews and Gentiles, a half-breed. But what does he do when he sees the man beaten and robbed and left half-dead? He pours oil into his wounds. He puts him on his beast, takes him to an inn, and pays the innkeeper and says, if there's anything lacking, I'll pay it when I come back. His attitude was, what is mine, I'll share with you if you need it. Now there is the Christian attitude. Right. So the Bible does not give the government the authority or the right to take legally what hardworking people have worked for in order to give it to lazy people, people who will not work. See, Paul didn't say to the Thessalonians, if a man can't work, if a man can't work, I want to tell you, you and I ought to be willing to help that person out of what we have. So Paul didn't say if he can't work, but if he won't work, if he can work, but he won't work, then don't let him eat. That'll get his attention if he gets hungry enough. Right. Yeah, think about Paul talking about to Timothy, again, talking about taking care of the widows. And he even has qualifications on which widows to take care of. Um, so there is some qualification there uh, to who we can help or who we're supposed to help. That's right. The church was not obligated to go out all over the community and find widows to help. But within the church fellowship or family, there were widows that they were to take care of if they met the qualifications. One was they had to be, I think it was 60 years of age. They had to have entertained strangers, washed the saints' feet. In other words, if there's a woman in the church who has lived a sinful, selfish life, and she's been a gossip, and she's just gone around and hurt people, the church is not obligated to take care of her. So Paul would say, even if the widow that meets these qualifications has a nephew or a niece, that they're first of all to take care of her rather than the church being responsible. But now if the church has a widow that is in need and she meets these qualifications, then it would be horrible for the church not to take care of her, to help her. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the M121 podcast. Before we get to Brother Sam's thoughts on the prosperity gospel, I wanted to tell you about Grace Alone Radio Network. Grace Alone is a Christian internet radio station that streams the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. That's 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. You can download the Grace Alone radio app on the Apple App Store or on the Google Play Store on an Android device, or you can listen online at gracealoneradio.net. Once again, thanks for joining the podcast this week. 
we return to get Brother Sam's thoughts on the prosperity gospel. I have heard men say, preachers say, that if you just had enough faith in God, lived in faith, stayed in faith, that you would never lack anything, that you would be in good health and that you would prosper financially. And I don't find that to be scriptural. The Apostle Paul suffered physically probably about as much as anybody in the New Testament church. He was beaten on a number of occasions. He was stoned in Lystra in a stone pit, left for dead. He was imprisoned. He told Timothy, Timothy, when you come to visit me in prison, please bring my cloak. Um, Paul suffered a great deal in his body, and he did not have a lot of material things in this world. So are we going to say that if Paul had just had more faith that he wouldn't have suffered so much? I'm not. I don't think we would be on solid ground to say that. Um, I think the health and wealth and prosperity gospel is unscriptural. Now, again, we serve a good God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. But I think it's so easy for God's children in this present life to put so much emphasis on the natural, the material, the body, and not the soul. And John was saying to Gaius, I want your soul to prosper. And we really do need to spend a lot of our time on this earth taking care of the inner man, feeding the inner man, um, and not be so focused on material things. So I think it's very deceptive to tell people, hey, if you'll just have more faith in God, God is going to see to it that you're going to have a bigger house, a better car, more clothes. You're always going to be healthy, yada, yada, yada. That's not something God has promised. Now, in the sweet by and by, when we all get to heaven, we'll be heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. There'll be no sickness, no tears, no getting old. Um, no funeral processions. It's going to be glorious in heaven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. But in this life, we live in a broken world. And the one thing that God's children need to focus on more than anything else is our Savior, Jesus Christ, what he did for us on the cross, Paul would say, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are so unjust. No. He said, I reckon the sufferings of this present time. This is in Romans 8. And Paul suffered. He said, I reckon the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. What sustained Paul in his imprisonment, in his suffering, in his thorn in the flesh? You know, you asked Jesus three times, please remove this thorn in my flesh. And Jesus wouldn't do it. Is this because Paul didn't have enough faith? I don't think so. But God gave him grace to bear with that thorn. So I would say to anybody listening today, I, I wish for all that are listening to be in good health and prosper as your soul prospers. But the truth is, all of us are going to have our seasons of suffering and trouble in this life. It's coming to everyone. And rather than us getting bitter and questioning God's goodness during our trials and tribulations, why don't we choose to get better instead of bitter and get more humble, more spiritual, more appreciative, more loving, and grow in grace and in knowledge rather than be murmuring and complaining about life's difficulties and trials. I'm back with Brother Sam. We talked through the persecution by prosperity about a week or two ago, and, and we realized that we did not look at the Laodicean church, which is a great case study, if you will, on a church that was persecuted by their prosperity. We talked about how as we are prosperous, we tend to forget God. We don't feel our need for God. And so we want to look at that today. So Brother Sam, thanks for joining me again. And we'll turn it over to you to get us started. Thank you, Brother Josh. Prosperity is a blessing. And the good Lord of heaven and earth wants to bless his people on this earth physically spiritually, financially. But when we are being blessed on this earth, we have to keep our hearts with all diligence because in our prosperity, we are tempted to forget God. And let's just look here in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, at the church of Laodicea. This is the last of the seven churches that Jesus Christ sends letters to. Verse 14 of Revelation 3, And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. And then Jesus says something very strange to them. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor 
and blind and naked. What I have been able to learn about the city of Laodicea is that they were very prosperous, materially, financially, they were very prosperous. And the church in Laodicea, obviously, was being blessed materially, financially. But rather than all these material blessings causing them to love God more and feel their need of Him more, it had caused them to take on the attitude that really we are rich, we are increased with goods, we have need of nothing. And I'm assuming this today that that expression, we have need of nothing, includes we don't need Jesus Christ. And so the Lord says to them, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? How could a church be so? They look at themselves and they say, We are rich. We're increased with goods. We have need of nothing. And the Lord looks at them and he says, You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, which one of those do you think is accurate? The Laodiceans or the Lord Jesus himself? So, in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. So, Verse 20 is a very interesting verse. Many religions say that this is Jesus standing at the door of the heart of a dead alien sinner, and he's knocking for permission to come in and give this person eternal life. Now, we know that's not true. How long would you have to knock at a dead man's door before he could get up and open the door and let you in. No, if he's dead, you're going to have to get in there in some other way. This is really a picture of Jesus Christ standing at the door of his church. And the Laodicean church was not a false church. It was not a planting of Satan. It was a planting of the Lord. It was his church. But his church had forgotten him. So he's standing at the door and knocking. And what does that tell us? That tells us that he's not inside. If you hear somebody knocking at your front door, that lets you know they're on the outside wanting to come in. Jesus is not even in the New Testament Laodicean church. He's on the outside knocking to come in. He's a gentleman. He's not just going to force himself on a church that doesn't want him. He's a gentleman. He knocks at the door. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and give him eternal life. No, these people already have eternal life. What is it that they don't have? They don't have the fellowship with Jesus Christ that they need. 
And so he's saying, I'll come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. That is, we will commune together. We'll have fellowship one with the other. So let's back up to what Jesus said in verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He says, I would that you were cold or hot. What does that mean? I want to share with you what I believe. If a person is cold, I mean really cold, they're going to search for a fire, for a coat, for a warm blanket. If they're hot, they're going to be searching for a fan, a shade, a cool drink of water. But if he's lukewarm, he's not going to be searching. And I believe what our Lord is saying to the church at Laodicea is this. If you were cold and you recognized it, I would come to you through the Holy Spirit like a warm blanket on a cold night, and I would warm you. If you were hot, I would be like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. If you were in need, you would seek me. That's what Jesus is saying. But they don't feel their need of him. They don't feel their need of anything, including God. And so he is saying to them, the truth is that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, we cannot say that this church was in need of more money or better houses or more food. They apparently had everything they needed in the natural realm, just like Americans. We are blessed as Americans. We're living in bigger houses, most of us are, than our parents lived in. We're driving better cars than our parents had. We're probably eating better food than our parents had. We've got more money than many of our parents and grandparents had. America has been truly blessed. And, and th that's a good thing to have the comforts of life. But when we are so blessed materially, we can end up with the attitude of the Laodiceans. So outwardly, materially, physically, we may be blessed. But spiritually, we may be like the Laodiceans, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What happened to this church? Apparently, they had been so blessed materially that it had caused them to forget God. And that is something we don't, we don't want to do. So the Lord is saying to this church in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door of this church, and I'm knocking. Now, I don't know how the Lord would be knocking at our churches today, but he has his own way of getting our attention and knocking. And if you and I hear the knock, we need to get up and go open the door and begin to have fellowship with him. He says, behold, pay attention. Anytime you see that word, 
This is important. I stand at the door and knock. So you and I have to open the door, and it's the door of fellowship. He's available. He wants our fellowship, but he's not going to force it on us. And if we're going to just forget him, then as we talked last time, when the Lord was going to take Israel into the land flowing with milk and honey, and they're going to be living in houses they didn't build and eating from vineyards they didn't plant, drinking from wells they didn't dig. He said, I want to bless you, but I don't want you to forget me. So that brings up something I want to share with you today in this talk. I want to look with you at Exodus chapter 33. He would say, beginning in verse 3 of Exodus 33, he's saying, I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, those are metaphors to just tell us how abundant this land is going to be in material blessings, flowing with milk and honey. For I will, but God says, For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. God is saying, I'm going to keep my promise that I made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to keep my promise and I'm going to bring you all into this land, but I'm not going to go in with you. I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. These Israelites, these descendants of Abraham, have let their hearts grow hard and they're stiff-necked. Now, notice what Moses says in verse 15 of Exodus 33. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. So Moses is saying, God, if you don't go with us, then don't take us. We can't make it without you. So notice what God says to Moses. Now Moses has got the right attitude. He understands without God, we are nothing. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. So God is going to go with them. But now in chapter 34 of Exodus, notice what God says. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 1, Exodus 34 and 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. What is God saying to Moses? If you want me to go with you, I want you to be ready in the morning. 
not in the afternoon, not at night. I want you to be ready in the morning and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. God is saying, Moses, you're going to have to prepare to meet me. And I would say to all of us today, you and I need to be preparing every day to meet the Lord. Seek him early in the morning while he may be found. It takes effort. Get up and open the door. It takes effort to open that door when he's knocking, right? It does. You've got to get up early in the morning. And he didn't say, seek my blessings, but seek me. He said to Israel in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my what? Face. Seek my face, not my handout. When my children were young, they were sneaky. They were little sinners, and they knew how to butter me up if they wanted a certain thing, and they usually would get it. But it always blessed me beyond measure when they came and sat in my lap and hugged me, and I'd be suspicious. (laughs) I'd wonder, what are they wanting now? But sometimes they didn't want anything. They just wanted me. As a parent, that is a wonderful moment. Our Heavenly Father is the same way. He wants us to seek Him. Now, I want to notice with you in Second Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 14 a statement concerning Rehoboam. Second Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 14, And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. How many of us today are preparing our hearts early in the morning to seek the Lord, to come to him? You know, so many times I think people think of prayer as only asking for what you need. Prayer is so much more than asking for things. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, On this wise pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come to him to honor him, to hallow him, to worship him. And don't you know God rejoices when his children do that? And then he taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If you notice In the first part of that prayer, it's all about him. It's all about God. It's all about his name, his kingdom, his will. And oh, that just causes me to rejoice, to just think if I could come to my God in that way, not just always asking for more, asking for bread, but just first of all worshiping him, seeking his face. So he tells Israel, If you'll do these four things, I'll do three things. What are the four things Israel is to do? First of all, we are to humble ourselves. Sometimes people who are so blessed financially and are doing so well find it hard to be humble. There's the danger. There's the persecution that comes to the church through prosperity. In all of our prosperity and our abundance, We can say we are rich, we're increased with goods, we have need of nothing. 
Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not a blessing to be poor in nature. It's not a blessing to need some food and you don't have any money to buy it. There's not a blessing in poverty. That's not what we're saying. But it is a great blessing to be poor in spirit, not middle class in spirit, not rich in spirit, but poor in spirit. What does that mean? That means I recognize that I'm spiritually bankrupt, that I'm the chief of sinners, that I need Jesus Christ in my life. So Jesus, so God says to Israel, if you'll humble yourselves, how many of y'all can humble yourselves today and just acknowledge you're a sinner? Without Jesus Christ, you're nothing. I'm a sinner and nothing at all. Jesus is my all in all. I like that old verse. So you and I need to humble ourselves because I can tell you, if you're praying but you're not humble, your prayers are not effectual. When the Pharisee went up to the temple to pray, he talked about all he had done for God and all he hadn't done. He was bragging and boasting. He was rich in himself. And he didn't, his prayers were not effectual. But the publican wouldn't even look to heaven. He just smote on his breast, looked down and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God heard that prayer and he went down justified. So you and I need to humble ourselves. Even if you're living in a 5,000 square foot mansion and got $10 million in the bank, you're still just a poor sinner. And you're as much in need of God as homeless people living under a bridge. Amen. Humble yourselves and then pray. The prayer of a humble man can be heard. And then when you're down there praying, seek his face. Not his handout, but his face. That is, you want to commune with him. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. In other words, we will commune together. A church that does not have Christ in the midst is a pitiful church. They may be meeting in a beautiful building. They may have incredible singing. They may have an excellent orator to preach to them. But if Christ is not in the midst, that church is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It's Christ in the midst of the church. That's what we all need as churches, as individuals. And notice, Jesus didn't say if any church, but if any man, you may be in a church that is not spiritual, not what it should be, but that doesn't mean that you can't open the door and commune with him individually. As you said, is a case study of how dangerous it is for God's children to prosper in this life. Seems like to me, so you have prosperity, 
Prosperity leads obviously to material blessings. The material blessings numb you to the fact that you're wretched, to the fact that you're miserable, to the fact that you're blind. When you're numb to that, then you don't have your need for God. You don't feel that need for God. And so you've said, we are to humble ourselves. We're to pray, to seek his face. I want to say this about the verse in Second Chronicles. It's interesting to me that the fourth thing he says is to turn from your wicked ways. When so many people would tell you, before you can come to God, you need to turn around and make yourself clean yourself up. That's not what God says. God says, humble yourself, pray, seek my face, and then we'll work on cleaning yourself up. Amen. You come to That's him first. an excellent point. When we close out here, as people who are impacted by this, prayer, humility, what are any other practical suggestions? If somebody's listening to this and says, I, I feel like I've been affected by prosperity. My, I, I don't feel my need for God. What other practical things would you tell them to do? Well, of course, reading the Scriptures is always a blessing in our life, studying the Scriptures, taking heed to the Scriptures, because the Scriptures contain God's Word to us. It's God speaking to us today. Anything you read in the Bible is just as much from God as if He had spoken it to you audibly. So you need to be staying in the Word, and you need to be in prayer and say, Lord, help me to guard my heart because I don't want to be worshiping idols. John said, little children, keep yourself from idols. You don't have to bow down to a stone or a piece of wood that's been carved into a picture of Moloch in order to have an idol. We can make idols out of our houses, out of our jobs, out of our careers. We can make idols out of our automobiles, out of our children, our spouses, our churches, our pastors. Idols are sneaky little sins. And I will say this, anything in your life that you think you can't live without other than God may have become an idol. No doubt about it. We have definitely forgotten God who has blessed us. Brother Sam, I'll say this publicly to anyone listening. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with me and with us. And uh, for those that don't know us or the relationship I have with you, there's few people in my life that have been as influential uh, to me as you have. And I, I wouldn't want to sit down with anybody else to start this than you. So appreciate it. And I'm sure we can do more of these in the future. Thank you, Brother Josh.